Democrats in general in leadership in the House and Senate right now are looking at what happened last night and they're accelerating the process for passing these bills. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. It's been a week for Democrats. We have results from the Virginia election and are processing what it means for Democrats moving forward. We're also seeing light at the end of the infrastructure tunnel. Voting rights legislation is on the Senate's agenda, and Biden is back from a groundbreaking trip to Europe. So joining us to help us break all of it down is senior politics reporter for the Huffington Post, Jennifer Bendry. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. I'm sure everyone listening to this show uh, really worked their tail off for Virginia. I'm I'm more than a little disappointed. I'm very disappointed. You know, I'm always the optimist, and um, my optimistic nature can really be soul-crushing on election nights that don't go our way. Um, and uh, I just – what I did see towards the end of this and, and throughout was really – amazing dedication from our activists and volunteers who have really not had a break since the you know presidential election and have been you know working in Georgia and then we're looking at what's next and uh, many of our friends here in uh, California where I am worked their tail off on the recall election and then we're right into mm-hmm. Virginia and there's been uh, people you know writing all these letters we've been talking about vote forward and the great work that letter writers have been doing and the phone calls the shifts we had great turnout at canvases which was very reminiscent of the midterms to see these uh big groups of people canvassing together in virginia and so i i know you're discouraged by this because i'm very discouraged by it and i'm not going to have spent the last couple of months talking about how important Virginia is and then say, well, it's okay. It was just one election and move forward. It, it was important and it's a loss. And if you've listened to some of the great interviews we've had by those candidates, um, you know how tight all of those races have been, both two years ago when we won the trifecta and the two years prior when we lost the majority by literally a, a, a name out of a hat. Um, It was a tie. So Virginia has always been very close and very tight. And uh, and now we have a lot of uh, thinking to do about what it looks like in elections going forward, what this does mean for the midterms. you know, we had great turnout. We had great engagement. So um, how do we make sure we overcome all the obstacles we're certainly going to face in the midterms to uh, to win uh, in a year? Yeah, we've had a a lot, a lot of wins lately. That doesn't mean that, you know, when you have the occasional loss that it hurts any less. You you sort of, you know, the the feelings of the wins fade. Um, But that means that the loss feeling will will fade too. So um, I hope, I really hope it doesn't discourage people because it, it happens sometimes and you learn from it and and move on to the next. And we talked to a couple of um, candidates from Virginia who had, you know, 
lost races previously and then came back to win big and or are hoping to come back to win big. So um, that's right. Valuable, valuable lessons there um, that, you know, this this work never ends. Um, and this is why. So, yeah, that's a great point. We talk about this a lot in our when we lose elections, how important it is to stay engaged and how we're building that scaffolding and building mm -hmm. uh, the credentials of those candidates so that they can be more successful in the future. So uh, we had some first time candidates running uh, in this election um, who uh, were doing just that and they may have fallen short, but they'll certainly step up to run again. And um, that's why we compete all the time and keep our head into the wind, no matter which way that wind is blowing. Yeah, um, I think we need some time to process what happened across the country as a whole. I think we have we we have a couple of different takes on this, and probably it has to do with where we are and the and the races that we've been looking at. And I do wonder if, when you're looking at you know purple places mm -hmm. um, like Virginia and other areas, you know. I think what, one of the things that we saw there was maybe a move for a lot of voters closer to a, a little bit of a, a middle point, not the super far right Trump stuff, which we know that Glenn Youngkin got Trump's backing, but never really mentioned him by name. Yeah. And, and that seemed to work. But there's also a little bit of a shift maybe away from, you know, super, super progressive ideas as well. And, you know, I'm looking at like what happened in uh, Minneapolis with um, right. voters rejecting this idea that they should replace, replace the police department with a public safety department instead. Um, but also looking at, you know, a vote here in Texas in Austin where voters overwhelmingly um, rejected an idea to hire more Austin police officers, which there's an extreme shortage of Austin police officers uh, to the point where um, they don't always respond to 911 calls unless it's an active um, emergency or situation. So, so we need more police here, uh, but voters said, we don't like the way this was written. We're not just going to throw a bunch of money at the police department and, and let them hire whoever. So, so my b bottom line is I feel big picture wise in some places we're seeing some movements in towards the middle. And I think that strategists would be um, smart to, to look deeper into that as they're thinking about messaging mm. moving forward. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't entirely agree with you. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, we get to do a little point-counterpoint <laughs> point on here, which is rare. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think at the end, when you talk about strategist uh figuring out messaging, I think that's really key because overall, I know that progressive policies are very popular. I mean, you look at, for instance, what's in the Build Back Better agenda, and um, that is overwhelmingly popular with Americans. And, uh, you know, I was uh, looking at that vote against the community policing model. Um, but that was really framed by detractors as 
abolishing the police and having community members policing or social services instead, which is not what it was doing. It was creating a system that had actual social services and professionals to intervene in, in situations, but also have a police force that was had oversight by those people too. So it, it was... It was more of a holistic look to community safety, but I don't think that the messaging of that got through. I think it was mostly people like, well, they're just going to get rid of the police department. That's scary. That scares me. So uh, overwhelmingly progressive policies are popular. What is clear to me, um, and I'll talk about this with Jennifer Bendry coming up too, is – it's the same old GOP typical uh, Southern strategy of racism and blame. And what Youngkin did in Virginia was uh, be smoother about it than Trump. Like you said, he's, he took Trump's endorsement without trumpeting Trump's endorsement. Trump said the, uh, the really awful um, shit out loud and Youngkin uh, – didn't he was more nuanced about it and uh, and talking about our children and and school safety and and you know sort of all of these coded things when he was uh, really talking and he, he talked about banning critical race theory in the schools which has become a, a talking point that is based on nothing critical race theory as you know is a legal uh, concept it is not taught in schools and um uh, you know, he even reached as far as wanting to ban Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. But that seemed to do the trick for a lot of s- those centrist voters that you're talking about who didn't like hearing the racist stuff out loud from Trump. But a lot of these, especially white suburban voters, went back into the fold. Um, so I, I, I don't know if like how we counter that racist um, trope whether it's loud or quiet, with anything other than just action on these progressive popular policies that are going to make people's lives better overall. Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when when you were talking about um, messaging. Um, and, and that's what happened, I think, here in Austin, too, with um, Prop A. I, I think it, people who didn't want it to pass made it clear that if we give more money to the police department to hire these police officers, we will have to lose firefighters, EMTs, social workers. So this mm. sort of, and I think, you know, now that the the boogeyman is not front and center in the Republican Party, de- Democrats do continue to make Trump front and center. And I can see why voters w- would say, well, he's gone. So so what are they talking about? And I don't think that we can, even when we recognize racism um, and coded language and all of that, we can't make the whole thing, well, you know, that's racist. That's something that Trump would, like, you, you got to give voters something besides, hey, that's racist. Right. E- even, if it, even if it is, because Youngkin didn't only talk about critical race theory. And he talked about collaborating with parents around, you know, protecting their children's education. Um, And, you know, you can't deny that we have um, like a lot of people scared about the supply chain 
inflation stuff that we've been talking about. Um, what's the solution to that? Stuff like that's out of someone like Terry McAuliffe's hands, but it certainly does affect him. It so, wasn't helpful to him at all. And Biden's approval ratings being so low there does not help him. Yeah. So my, my only point is we got a lot of work to do at the federal level and also with messaging. Um, and I know we want to always like flag the the big bad stuff and we absolutely should. And on top of that, you know, how are we collaborating with voters to make their lives better and, and right. protect their, their kids' education? I know all of that stuff is there, but I feel like the Republicans have done a little bit of a better job around messaging that this yeah. time around. Yeah, about the collaborating with the teachers, uh, with the parents and, and teachers that you were mentioning, uh, our friend Anat Shankar Asario, uh, who has been on the show a couple of times and is mm -hmm. just so brilliant when it comes to messaging. And you should just follow her on, on Twitter. In fact, she has a new pod, her second season of her podcast is coming out like right now. And I really recommend everyone tune into that because she's just brilliant. But she put mm -hmm. out a tweet and said something along the lines of, there are uh, like 10 to 20 different ways to respond to um, parents being threatened by what their kids are being taught in schools. And saying that parents shouldn't have a say in their kids' education is not one of them, <laughs> right? You know, that, yeah. that, and so, yes, the, the messaging is important, but also, like you said, let's talk about what actually makes people's lives better because we've always said on this, like messaging means nothing if we can't actually deliver for people. And it looks like the Build Back Better agenda could actually be voted on potentially this week. Uh, it, it was looking like this week until I, I think just this morning, uh, Speaker Pelosi said she wanted to add back in paid family leave uh, and for medical uh, situations too, which is fantastic. Um, that needs to be in there. I don't think she would do that either if she didn't think it could get back in there and mm. still get passed because they were so much on the precipice of having agreement even from Cinemansion on on this. So, you know, that's do that's hopeful. You know, it's so interesting. Do you consider uh, this a progressive idea? Well, that's a great question because um, we are the only uh, wealthy country in the world right. that doesn't do this. Right. But, but I think that, uh, you know, most people, certainly conservatives would consider it like a progressive idea. You know, they are, you know, Republicans are 100 percent opposed to this. But um, no, it seems like a fundamental no brainer for families. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because when you when we were talking a little a few minutes ago, um, you're like, oh well, people overwhelmingly are in favor of progressive ideas, and I was <laughs> like, well, a, a lot of these seem like just like run of the mill, no brainer, middle of the road. Like, sure, let's let people take care of their kids or and their senior citizen relatives. You're totally right. But it's the progressive caucus that's been fighting for that and fighting for that to yeah. go back in. Um, and the more centrist uh, caucus and Republicans who have opposed it. So I guess it's progressive according to our American politics. Everywhere else in the world already does this. So, Yeah, so interesting. All right. So we'll keep an eye out for Build Back Better. Also, we're keeping an eye on the, on the John Lewis Voting Rights 
bill, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, up for a, 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 a vote around whether it should um, be debated. Uh, and it has, I know, I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's have a vote to decide if we should even talk about this thing that's fundamental to our democracy. <laughs> and it has uh, one Republican Yay! senator supporting It's bipartisan. It. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa oh, Murkowski. God. I know the bar is so low here. <laughs> we just need nine more. Yeah. So, uh, so two big important things to look out for, um, build back better and protecting our democracy, you know, <laughs> a lot going on, you know, uh, boy, I mean, look, the, little things. <laughs> the, the two biggest takeaways for me really from Virginia is what we've known all along. And that's that our majorities are tenuous and, mm. and not permanent and uh, and so we need to stay vigilant. We need to fight for those majorities, of course, and we will fight for the majorities we have federally uh, in the midterms. But in the meantime, we need to pass some frickin' legislation like we're going to lose our majorities because we very well yeah. may. And we have now, what, like a really a six-month legislative window when you take away holidays and breaks and recesses and all that um, to get this stuff done. So. I know you've been putting a lot of, uh, you listener have been putting a lot of pressure on your representatives. Um, we cannot let up. I mean, if anything, they should look at Virginia. Uh, I'm looking at Mansion and Cinema also. And um, and knowing that if we want to get anything done, we're going to have to get rid of the filibuster. We really are. We're going to have to uh, at least carve it out for these voting rights. Um, but we need to make some major change and, and this is the time we have to do it. All right. The other big thing, um, Biden was, uh, in, in Europe the last few mm-hmm. days wrapping up in Glasgow, um, at the climate summit there and, you know, put, basically gave himself more work to do here at home, but maybe he's, because he said things in front of world leaders people will be more inclined to to make it happen. I don't know. Well, that's Again, th- these are these these are things that feel like no-brainers, but I guess we got to we got to fight about it. So. <laughs> that's a uh, a nice and well-earned cynical view on these global conferences. <laughs> but um <laughs> there were some, you know, big important agreements on uh, methane reduction, uh, ending deforestation, uh, you know, some global cooperation on that. And there's a lot to talk about. I honestly don't know all the context and and details about it right now. And uh, so I'm encouraged by by this, especially in contrast to the previous administration who didn't Mm. even show up for any climate talks. They chose not to even show up and they rolled back all this. So so I'm encouraged that we have some forward movement on that. Uh, We're going to book uh, some environmental experts and, and really dig into that in the coming weeks so that we can get a better view of what that actually looks like and what we can do to support that and help that in our own communities. All right, so um, let's talk about this week's Hero of the Week. Our Hero of the Week this week is Michelle Wu, who is going to be Boston's 
first female and first person of color to be mayor. Mayor of the first... shitty of Boston. <laughs> the what? <laughs> the shitty of Boston. <laughs> is that your Boston accent? It is. You parked the car in the shitty of Boston. Shitty of Boston. Listen, I lived in Boston for four years and I never heard it described thus. Um, <laughs> but I have heard how racist it is. So, <laughs> there you go. So uh, so this is, a, you know, in that context, huge, huge. And uh, can you um, like no only white male mayors for the entire history of the city. And then boom, here's Michelle Wu, daughter of immigrants from Taiwan. Um, She's former city council president. She um, ran against a whole bunch of other women of color, just a super diverse um, field of candidates there in Boston for the voters to choose from. So uh, this is exciting and congratulations to Michelle Wu. We're, we're excited to watch her. What is it? A mayorality? Mayor. Her term, her term is mayor. <laughs> what did you say? Mayorality? Mayor, mayorality. I haven't right? heard that before. So we're both learning new, new things. Yeah. The mayorality in the shitty of Boston. There you go. All right. Good on you, Boston voters. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh, do we have a to-do list this week? I yes, always, oh my God, yeah. I always want to give people a to-do list every week because that's what we do. But um, I know everyone is coming off of working really hard on the Virginia election is pretty burned out. So I'm going to offer up two suggestions to do this week. Oh, okay. Okay, so one is to take some personal time <laughs> and and get some rest because I, I know everyone worked really hard and everyone is feeling emotional as I am and drained. So take take some time to, you know, go for a walk or do whatever you need to do for your mental health. And then if you're still fired up and, uh, and you don't want to take a break and you want something constructive to do, absolutely give your senator, congressperson, a call and let them know how important it is that we get this Build Back Better agenda passed, that we pass voting rights and um, and move forward as Democrats. Yeah, this is how we, we hold on to the majority in the midterms is by showing the country that uh, we can get things done. So, you know, I think you can have a treat and make a phone call or send an email. <laughs> That's just my opinion. But Everybody knows what what they what what they need. So yeah, I I appreciate you encouraging people to to take what they need. Take what you need, but if you have a lot of anger, a constructive way to channel that anger would be to call your representatives and let them have it. <laughs> I bet people will be fired up and ready to do something after hearing this interview that you have with uh, Jennifer. Jennifer Bendry is a senior politics reporter for HuffPost. She has covered Congress and the White House for HuffPost since 2011. She previously reported on Congress for four years for Roll Call, a Capitol Hill newspaper. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Anytime. 
Let's jump right into what's top of mind for everyone, and that's the results from last night in Virginia. There are takes abound on what went wrong for Dems last night. Youngkin ran a more nuanced form of racism and managed to both embrace and distance himself from Trump. Democrats struggles to pass the Build Back Better agenda before the election uh, and low Biden approval ratings hurt McAuliffe. Maybe McAuliffe wasn't the right candidate for the time. There's lots. What's what are your biggest takeaways from last night and and where that puts us heading into the midterms? I mean, clearly what happened is that Glenn Youngkin got more people out to vote than Terry McAuliffe. <laughs> so he won. That's a hot take. So that's the take that everyone is glossing over. Uh, more people voted for him. So he wins. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There are always a pile of hot takes after a race. And um, I mean, you've got anything from people saying, well, this was about school closures in Virginia and um, parents being really pissed about the, the process of, you know, managing school closures with their kids for so long during the pandemic. Then there's people pointing to like the historical precedent of this where, you know, it's rare when a the, the party of the, the president is matching the, the party of the governor of Virginia. Right. So that's one way to look at it. There's people who say, well, Terry McAuliffe just ran a crappy campaign and he didn't go out enough and knock on doors. And he was the safe choice right. for the seat and everybody just expected him to be safe and win. There's lots of people blaming Congress for not passing the the massive infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. And that shows that Democrats don't know how to govern. There's also like you touched on this idea that that Youngkin is uh, he successfully dressed up white grievance uh, mm -hmm. and, and played himself off like a, a fleece wearing center right reasonable person. So there's just I mean, you can go 30,000 foot perspective, you can go 10 foot perspective, but it almost is pointless to ask this question because it's probably some pieces of all of these things and we don't have to just have one thing. To me, um, he just ran a better campaign, and you can say, well, he he used racism and and fear and and leaned on uh, darker elements of his party to get out those parts of the campaign. While he was the face of a much friendlier, more moderate person when he was talking about issues, so I don't know. I mean, we can talk about any of those things, and they're probably a piece of it. But the the end of you know, ultimately, he won, and people can dissect this by you know by county and. And region all they want, but he won, and and there's a lot of moving parts, and I think that's that's the best you can do when when you look at what happened here. Yeah, I um, and what you said to lead off with is that people showed up and voted, and more people voted for him. Um, we actually had great turnout in this election, and that's that's a good thing for our democracy. Um, but it is a bit flummoxing when kind of the rule of thumb for us, at least lately, is that when turnout is really great, it favors Democrats because um, the the policies the Democrats are championing are, are actually very popular with Americans. And um, I guess the lack of policies or the suppression that Republicans are pushing is not popular with Americans. Um, but in this case, we had a high turnout and uh, and did lose. So that creates some dynamics that is worrying coming into the midterms. And um, to me, uh, the, the two elements of it uh, that you touched on, uh, one is 
getting back to the kinder, gentler racism, the the dog whistle politics of the Southern strategy that the GOP has been using for decades and decades, having, as you said, an, a nice fleece-wearing, centrist-looking person, it, it did seem to bring a lot of those suburban white voters back into the fold that had voted for Biden and were uh, probably not wanting to be tied to a vote for Trump, but uh, still seemed, you know, comfortable answering the call of of fear and blame and racism that the Southern strategy does. I think that's pretty clear, even from the early returns that we can see. And I want to get to the Build Back Better part of that and what it means for Democrats to actually pass some stuff, because I want to hear about that. But before we do that, you shared an article about um, your your tweet was, uh, in light of Youngkin's win last night, I just note the role that Senate Republicans played in trying to help him win by ginning up fear, anger, and transphobia over a misreported sexual assault incident in a Virginia school, uh, an article from about a week ago that you wrote in the Huffington Post. Um, which goes to like <laughs> the Southern strategy on steroids in a way. But can you talk about that article and and uh, and why you shared it this morning? Well, I you know as a a congressional reporter, I cover a lot of hearings, and one of the hearings I covered recently was for a judicial nominee for a California-based U.S. court. And in that hearing, just about every single Senate Republican asked this nominee, again, to a California-based seat on a U.S. court, um, questions about a sexual assault that took place in a Loudoun County, Virginia school back in May. Mm. And it didn't make any sense why this kept coming up. It was the lead question for every single Republican in this hearing. Um, And as I started to connect the dots a bit more and, and pay more attention to what was happening, it it became clear that what they were doing is they were trying to to infuse elements of the Virginia governor's race into a Senate hearing for a, a, a federal judicial nominee um, that had nothing to do with this nominee. It was just a, a public forum to try to talk, you know, give more attention to this incident um, that took place in a Virginia school. And, and basically they're arguing what um, national conservative news outlets were reporting about, which was there was an incident where, I mean, I don't want to, this is an involved story. (laughs) I don't want to spend the whole time talking about it, but basically there was um, a case of a boy and a a girl in a Virginia school um, in a girl's bathroom and the the teenage boy raped this girl. And the story is horrible and it got distorted um, by the conservative news media. They Mm. turned it into a story about this Loudoun County school having a transgender inclusive bathroom policy. And that being the reason why a boy was able to walk into a girl's bathroom and essentially ambush a a girl and rape her. Um, This was the narrative that the Senate Republicans in this totally unrelated hearing for a federal judicial nominee latched onto and just kept bringing it up over and over and over again and taking shots at, at, transgender people and the, and the, you know, the need to protect girls and bathrooms from predators and mm. all going back to the story that was not true. When it, it turns out what the story actually was, was um, in fact, it was two teenagers were in a girl's bathroom and this, the boy raped this girl. Um, they had previously had consensual encounters in that bathroom. They knew each other. Um, this boy was not, a, um, at least it's not been confirmed that he was transgender. He identifies as male based on all reporting. So you have to tease apart some things here. There was an horrific 
incident that happened. But the way it was framed by Senate Republicans was that this was about a transgender school policy, which the school did not have this policy in place at the time. There was mm -hmm. no case of a, an ambush. You know, it was two people who knew each other. So that's what happened back in May. Fast forward to late October, you know, two weeks before a very close Virginia governor's race. And you have every single Senate Republican in a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee hearing bringing this story up over and over again and distorting what happened as a way to fan um, transphobia and anger about a Virginia school policy. So the Virginia school theme here was a thing throughout the entire governor's race. You know, parents were were mad at schools over closures during the, the pandemic. Then there's right. Republicans pushing this uh, critical race theory um, garbage about, right. you know, children being taught to hate white people, which is not true. And that's not even what critical race theory is. And it's not even taught in public schools. Yeah. Um, so you've got this kind of like all these dots and they all come back together around schools in Virginia. And this was a thing that the Republicans really seized on. And, and these ugly narratives that were being pushed by Senate Republicans and then some other factions of the Republican world um, were not the things that Len Youngkin himself would say. He he was out saying more comfortable things, more um, I'm a centrist uh, Republican person. I don't like hate on trans, you know, transgender people. Um, but it, it's it, to me, it looks like there's like this darker element to this campaign that he ended up not being the face of, but he benefited from. Yeah. And so there's dots all over that that tie these these darker elements to this campaign. And here we are today and he just won. And you can't say, whoa, wow, he's terrible. He said this about, you know, transgender people or he amplified these horrible lies and, and whatever it, it all these pieces come together, came together last night when people turned out and voted. So, you you know, it's not to say that this is because of this incident in a, in a Virginia school bathroom. That's why he won. that's I would not say that. Yeah. But there are these pieces like that that have been the undercurrent of this campaign. And it's you can't overlook that piece of this because that is appealing to, to the lowest common denominator and people to try to, you know, gin up fear and anger about something that Democrats are responsible for. And it has to do with schools. So therefore, their children I can't vote for Democrats in Virginia. It's, it's, it's all it's all connected. You know, you've got to like really map it all out. But um, all this to say, there were some some ugly pieces to this campaign that that were operating at a, at a lower level. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's essential that we don't overlook that because uh, it's incredibly appealing when you appeal to people's fears about their children. Right. I mean, that's going to resonate with with people. And um, that's what they really did effectively. Uh, Youngkin did say that he would ban critical race theory uh, as his first act of governor. So that'll be interesting to see how he uh, what legislation he does to ban something that is not actually taught and doesn't actually exist outside of being a legal argument. Um, and but, it's also not what pe people don't even know what it is. It's just become yeah. this phrase that 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 a lot of Republicans and in, in politics have you know latched onto to try to scare people into um, believing that our children are being taught to hate white people and to to have white shame and mm -hmm. you know it's it's like a terrible thing happening to our children and. In fact, it's like an academic discipline taught in college that, you know, talks about like the history of racism in this country, like right. and how it's affected the systems that that our country, uh, you know, is built on. And it's it's all true, but it's it's not something that is boiled down as some lesson 
for kids in grade school about like, you're white, you should feel shame. It, it's, it's an academic discipline that looks at racism. I mean, for, for a graduate level student, all this, this money and time spent uh, by Republicans on talking about this is, is just empty. It's just a waste. Yeah. And in general, uh, the, the notion that Republicans are pushing that equity means less for white people and that it doesn't just mean, you know, a more vibrant economy for everybody. So, um, Having said that, that was my smooth segue to uh, talk about the Build Back Better agenda, which uh, definitely has a purposeful focus on equity and looks like, like, you know, when we talk about messaging and elections and all of this, and this was definitely a problem for Youngkin not to have any any of these achievements from Democrats to run on, um, I I don't think that it's gone terribly slow, actually, because this is such a transformative piece of legislation that um, and there's so many pieces to it that, uh, you know, it's remarkable to get past in any time frame. Having said that, um, I think Democrats overall were lacking the fierce urgency of now on this. And uh, if they had passed this, it would have helped Youngkin, I'm sure, a lot. More to the point, it's going to help people. And that's how we win the argument is by passing legislation that helps people. So um, you are on the Capitol Hill beat right now. I know that Speaker Pelosi recently said she wants to add back in the paid family leave. Um, what does that do to the timeline? It seemed like we were about to have a vote uh, this week potentially on it. Is that going to slow things down? Um, what's it looking like? Well, I think, um, first of all, I think the time, the, let's talk about the timeline. I think that you said this a minute ago, but what's happening right now is not the signs of a total disaster for Democrats, in my opinion. Um, I remember covering the Affordable Care Act um, mm. becoming law, and that took about a year. And it was, there were numerous times when there were different factions of Democrats fighting with each other. There were numerous times when I thought that the bill was dead because it was just, I didn't see how certain factions of the Democratic Party in the House were going to agree on anything. And then it would come back from life support and be back on track. And I think what we're seeing right now is actually that what it looks like when something is coming together, it's just, it's not pretty. It's the sausage making, as people like to say. But this is what it looks like when you're hashing out a major transformative piece of legislation. Right. So I think the this idea that they should have hurried up and passed it before the Virginia governor's race is bizarre to me because you that's not really how this works. Right. Like you don't pass a major transformative bill to try to help a man win a governor's race in a state. Like it's just that that's not what they're doing. It's just it's a different system. I get that they're they're related and they potentially, you know, what Congress does potentially has, you know, it does have some role in, in a governor's race. But as a Hill reporter, I I think it's strange to say, oh, if they had passed that bill, this would have helped him. Well, he hadn't, you know, Terry McAuliffe had nothing to do with that bill. He didn't write it. He's not helping to cut a deal on it. He's a guy in Virginia running his separate race. So that I take issue with that, that takeaway from this. Uh, that said, Yes. So this morning, the day after this race, Pelosi announced that she is adding uh, four weeks of paid leave back into the, the bill, which is a big deal. That's a huge piece that some Democrats really wanted. They were going to leave it out because Senator Manchin um, over in the other chamber had said he wouldn't support it. So the fact that she, the day after this loss in Virginia, 
the fact that Pelosi's first message this morning is we're putting paid leave back in our bill, what does that say? That says, okay, we're going to go ahead and push a bill out of the House that progressives are more happy with, and we're going to put it on Joe Manchin to, to say no when it comes to the Senate. We're not going to hold it up for him. He's going to have to do that himself. So in terms of timing of moving this bill forward, I think what Pelosi is doing is basically making the House's bill as, you know, making it a bit more progressive, adding more things into it. Democrats just lost last night in Virginia. So you can see this as a sign of, of Democrats in Congress looking at that and saying, okay, we need to get moving on this. We need to make it bolder and not just cater to the moderates like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the, mm -hmm. in the Senate who are blocking this. And let's pass the bill that we want because we believe in it. So I think that's what she's doing. I, they, you know, in terms of timing, I, I, I think I saw that they're going to have a hearing today mm -hmm. on on the bill where they're adding that provision back into it. So that means they're they're moving along. I mean, the, the next thing they do is set up a not to bore your listeners with procedural <laughs> matters, but after they've you know crafted a bill in a committee hearing and voted it out. It has to go through a rules committee hearing where a bunch of people set a rule for the House floor on how they're going to debate the bill. And then after the rules committee, then it goes to the floor. And that's when they fully debate this bill and then they vote on it. So I think I saw that a House rules committee hearing is coming soon, which means that it would this bill would now go through the regular committee and then right into the rules committee hearing and then right onto the floor. So I don't know what that means exactly in terms of are we talking like this bill will be on the floor tomorrow? Maybe. Friday, maybe early next week, maybe. But the sense, the more important piece I get here is that based on last night's loss for Democrats and then Pelosi's move this morning, what I see is Democrats looking at what happened and saying, let's stick this really popular provision into our bill that we took out for Joe Manchin. Let's pass this bill fast, give it to the Senate, let Joe Manchin be the one who stands up to take out four weeks of paid family leave and be, let's let's move forward. He can yeah. do that if he's ready to do that and be the face. This very popular provision. Right. He can do that himself. And either he's going to do it and get, in theory, get a bunch of crap for being that guy or um, or he won't. I mean, he, this morning I saw he already responded. He said, well, I don't I don't support that. So he did maybe say that he will take it out in the Senate. That's but all this to say, Democrats certainly, I think, by and large, at least the progressive faction of of the House, it, in Pelosi, actually, I should just say Democrats in general in leadership in the House and Senate right now are looking at what happened last night and they're accelerating the process for passing these bills. Well, I think that's good. And uh, Mariah and I were talking in our segment before this about um, about this. And she pointed out, like, is paid family leave really a progressive idea when we are the only industrialized wealthy country uh, on the planet that doesn't have it, that doesn't no, do that? It's not, <laughs> it's not a progressive idea. It's it's one that is like very, very publicly supported, you know, across the country. It's also one that progressives in, in Congress are strongly advocating for. And, and maybe the reason it gets tagged as progressive is because there are people like Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat, mm -hmm. um, who is coming out against adding that in and he's more moderate so it's you know it's well it's interesting to hear him him say say that because i don't like betting against pelosi and and i think she's very good at not putting anything on the floor that she doesn't think will get through so um 
I I kind of almost assumed when she said that, that she was putting that back in, that there'd been some communication about that across the board. But um, uh, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. But, um, you know, this is – and I 100% agree with you. Um, you know, we, we are a community of progressive activists that wants things now. Like, when do we want it? Now, not after a deliberative and thoughtful process where everyone weighs in and, and makes amendments. No, we want it now. So I would have liked to have seen this get passed before this election, but that is a crazy arbitrary timeline to put on it. Um, what will end up getting passed, and I do believe it will get passed, uh, will be transformative and, and really amazing for our country and will make a lot of people's lives better and address climate change in a way that we haven't too. So, I mean, this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And even if it only passes with like three or four of the main parts that the Democrats really wanted, it's a huge deal. Yeah. And I think that part of the problem here is that, at least for Democrats, is that they need to do a better job of messaging what they're doing. What is in this bill? Because I don't think it, it's very, it's pretty clear what's happening is that Republicans are, are opposing it because they're putting a really large number on this package. And they're saying, oh, we can't spend Right. 1.7 trillion dollars we have we have the our debt and our our, our deficits and this is about We've fiscal got aircraft carriers which, to pay for which you know <laughs> i know this is the arguments they're making this is a big dollar figure we can't do this it's irresponsible well okay so i think for democrats i mean they can get into the weeds and say well it's you know first of all it's all paid for because we have you know everything in this bill is already paid for with offsets and also like let's talk about everything in it so you have to kind of boil things down to a, a, a bumper sticker mm-hmm. oftentimes with massive packages like this. And this was a, a problem for Democrats when they were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act because Republicans could just be like, oh, death panels, mm. um, you know, government takeover. Like you can kind of grasp that, but you, you know, no one's going to sit there and listen to Nancy Pelosi say, well, let me walk you through why the Affordable Care Act is a really important piece of legislation that will transform Like you're just going to, your eyes are going to glaze over. Like, right. you, you know, you, you need something that sticks. And in this case, I, I think that, you know, Republicans have just been hitting the, the price tag over and over, but they will not talk about what's in the bill. Yeah. And that's because they know that what's in this bill is extremely popular yeah. and it's not particularly progressive. It's things like paid family leave and um, strengthening healthcare protections. It's things like seriously addressing climate change. I mean, things, things that are not, crazy and and you know excessive yeah so i think they're they're what they need to do is is they need to do a better job of of boiling down their talking points so that people can grasp what is in this bill and get why it's a such a big deal i don't think people still really understand what is in this bill absolutely why it matters so there's aspects of this package that it's it's transformative and historic but it's also it's also very basic things in it that, that people don't have that, to your point, that other industrialized countries all have. And we're just trying to catch up with the way we treat families mm. because families are dumped on. And, you know, parents don't have a lot of basic supports from the government that they need for taking care of their kids or being able to take sick leave or, or you know, when you have a baby, you have no paid time off in some cases. Like that's that's just like a baseline. So. Yeah. Anyway, all this to say, uh, I, I think that the bill on that they've got is is extremely popular if they can do a good job of reminding 
regular Americans, like the basic things it does, because once you get into the details of what it does in some digestible way, Republicans really don't have any argument against what they're doing. Yeah. In fact, some of them are quietly ready for this to pass. I would argue because they know it's going to help people in their states. They exactly. They just don't want to publicly say they support it. Oh, they're ready to take credit for it. Just like uh, when the stimulus went out, they voted against, and then they went to their district and said, look at this great stimulus that we absolutely. sent you. Yeah. That will absolutely happen. Yeah. They just didn't have to say that they voted for it because of the price tag, but they will happily take credit for it when it, when it benefits the people in their state. This will be the second time I evoke her name on this podcast, but one of our friends, Anat Shankar Asario, who is an incredible messaging expert. If you don't know her work, you should check her out. She likes to say the Democrats uh, are always selling the recipe and not the brownie, um, which is a great, <laughs> a great way to put it. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good analogy. And that's, that to me, that's similar to the bumper sticker analogy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Republicans can crank out some amazing bumper stickers and those work, but the bumper stickers aren't accurate. Yeah, <laughs> so, they're, they're and, lies. Accurate, they lie on the bumper stickers. To, you have to be able to explain what something is that's complicated in a in a digestible and um, like helpful way, so people will take meaning from it and understand yeah. it quickly. Um, I don't have much time with you, but I do want to hear one more little bit of stuff that's going on on Capitol Hill right now, and that's voting rights. We actually have we have a bipartisan movement on voting rights. We've got one Republican, <laughs> Senator one. Lisa Murkowski, who is uh, at least going to vote for debate on the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. Uh, can you tell us what voting rights is looking like? And is there, I mean, look, we got to get rid of the filibuster, at, at least for voting rights and for everything else too. But uh, what's going on in the Senate right now around voting rights? Uh, I think the short of it is, is uh, there is now currently a bipartisan substitute version of the voting rights bill with one Republican on it, Lisa Murkowski. So now they can call it bipartisan. But as you said, um, the bill that's going to come up requires... 60 votes in the Senate. That means they need 10 Republicans to vote to advance the bill. And as far as I know, the only Republican ready to do that is the new Republican co-sponsor of the new substitute of the bill, which is Lisa, who's Lisa Murkowski. So she'll vote, yes, but then where do you get the other nine? I don't know. And this, they just announced this bill yesterday. So I, I, I mean, I think if anything, you know, they announced this bill yesterday ahead of this Senate vote, but they're going to filibuster it again. And if anything, this is like a moment for Lisa Murkowski to at least salvage herself and say, like, hey, I tried. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because she's she's a regular co-sponsor of, of voting rights legislation. So it's not a shock that that she would want to be part of this. And she's good on it. And she believes in this, you know, that people should have fair voting rights. So it's not a shock that she's on board with this. But I think I mean, honestly, I think the vote on this will fail because it, Republicans will filibuster it again. And the only difference this time is it appears it was a bipartisan effort to do something with one Republican being willing to do something. And who knows, maybe maybe a couple other Republicans will vote to, to advance the bill, but they don't need a couple. They need 10. Yeah. And I, I just in this moment, I don't see that in, unless unless I'm missing something. So I think we're looking at today being the fourth time that Senate Republicans will will filibuster and kill a voting rights bill this year. Well, that's a wonderful legacy for them <laughs> to, <laughs> to have. Yeah, good for them. 
you know, fighting against democracy. Love it. Um, real quick, thank you've taken so much of your time and really appreciate your perspective. It's, it's great to meet you and have you on the show. We always ask one question of our guests that we end on, and it's, it's been a week, so this is kind of a rough one, but what gives you the most hope right now? I think what gives me hope is seeing new generations of people come in who just view democracy and view our, our country's history and view politics through a different lens than than even 20 years ago. And there's a much more, um, people are much more open-minded and aware of things that have happened in this country's history. You know, I'm thinking right now of like, in terms of indigenous rights or um, injustices against various communities in this country, like people are much more aware of things that aren't right and um, willing to look it in the eye and, and do something about it. And that make, that gives me hope. Um, because the people who are trying to maintain the status quo are aging out. So hopefully things will continue to move in this country in a way that in a pretty simple, you know, simply put that people care about democracy and yeah. they care about protecting elections and they care about people not being treated like shit. And, and, you know, that people care about each other and, and care about fairness and, you know, about trying to make things better for, for, for everybody. It's like pretty basic stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That, that gives me hope too. Uh, Jennifer, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jennifer Bendery for her insight and for joining us to help help us with all those things. Uh, before we go, we do want to talk about our reasons for hope. So, uh, Mariah, what's your reason for hope? Oh, I'm very hopeful that that kids have started to get the the COVID vaccine. I saw some uh, video of, of the first kids getting their, uh, their their approved doses and. You know, they, some of them looked so happy. Some of them looked very scared. <laughs> Kids don't like getting <laughs> which, shots. <laughs> which is reflective of how I feel getting, getting, I got, I got my booster um, last week. Oh, good. Yeah. So, so, uh, and I had the same facial expression. Um, but I think this is going to offer relief to a lot of, of parents and teachers and kids and this has been such a scary time for children. I, yeah. I hope I hope this makes them feel better in in many, many ways. Uh, here, here. What is your reason for hope, Steve? My reason for hope is all of you listeners, volunteers, party activists, campaign people, organizers, everyone who, um, despite overwhelming obstacles has consistently shown up for our democracy. Whether we win or lose, we've been moving forward and uh, and doing it together. And it just gives me tremendous hope. This community always gives me hope. It's why I always encourage people to jump in and be part of this community because whether things are, are looking dark or whether things are, um, whether we're winning, exciting new things, Doing it together with this group of, of activists and, and amazing people always brings me joy and hope. So that's what gives me hope today is all of you, all of our listeners.
thanks everybody for, for everything you do. And thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. What is your reason for hope? No, it might be a little hard now, but there's a lot of good stuff going on too. So we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And if you're feeling up for it, you can sign up to volunteer there. Mariah's going to be gone for the next couple of weeks. So we're going to have some guests coming to try to fill in for her. We'll miss you, Mariah, and see you back in a few weeks. Thank you. We appreciate everyone being here. We'll be with Steve and a special guest. (laughs) We'll be back with more next week.